Section 30 of the Cambridge Modern History. Volume 1. The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matea Bracic. Chapter 9. Germany and the Empire by T. F. Tout. Part 2. Two great families had won a prominent position in northern Germany in the early years of the 15th century, and had somewhat pushed aside more ancient houses, such as the Guelphs of Brunswick, whose habit of subdividing their territories for a long time grievously weakened their influence. The financial distress of the Emperor Sigismund had forced him to pledge his early acquisition, Brandenburg, to the wealthy and practical Frederick of Hohenzollern, who as Burgrave of Nuremberg was already Lord of Kulmbach, and of a considerable territory in Upper Franconia. Despairing of redeeming his debt, Sigismund was in 1417 compelled to acquiesce in the permanent establishment of that house in the electorate of Brandenburg. Albert Achilles, Frederick's younger son, had shown in his long strife against Nuremberg and the Wittelsbachs rare skill as a warrior and shrewd ability as a statesman even when his material resources were limited to his ancestral Kulmbach possessions. Called to the electoral dignity in Brandenburg after his brother Frederick II's death in 1471, Albert held a position among the northern princes only paralleled by that of Frederick of the Palatinate among the lords of the Rhine. As long as he lived, he made his influence felt through his rare personal gifts, his courage and his craft, and his fantastic combination of the ideals of the knight-errant with those of the statesmen of the Renaissance. The welfare of Germany as a whole appealed to him almost as little as to Frederick the Victorious. All his pride was in the extension of the power of his house, and his most famous act was perhaps that Dispositio Achillea, of 1473, which secured the future indivisibility of the whole mark of Brandenburg and its transmission to the eldest male heir by right of primogenitor. Yet Albert died half-conscious that his ambition had been ill-directed. All projects and all warlike preparations, declared the dying hero, were of no effect so long as Germany as a whole land had no sound peace, no good law or law courts, and no general currency. But with Albert's death in 1486, the power of Brandenburg, based purely on his individuality, ceased to excite any alarm among the princes of the north. The House of Wettin, which had long held the Margravate of Meissen, acquired with the district of Wittenberg and some other fragments of the ancient Saxon duchy, the electorate and duchy of Saxony, 1423. The dignity and territories of the house now made it prominent among the princes of Germany but the division of its lands, finally consummated in 1485 between Ernest and Albert, the grandsons of the first Wettin elector, Frederick the Valiant, limited its power. The singular moderation and the conservative instincts of the Saxon line saved it from aspiring to rival Albert Achilles or Frederick the Victorious. The most illustrious representative of the Ernestine house, Frederick the Wise, who became elector in 1486, was perhaps the only prince of the first rank who, while giving general support to the emperor, ultimately identified himself with the plans of imperial reform which were now finding spokesmen among the princes of the second class. 
As a rule, however, the princes of strongest resources and most individual character were precisely those who were most quickly realising the ideals of localised and dynastic sovereignty, which, in the next century, became the common ambition of German rulers of every rank. Though the power of the strongest of the German princes was thus limited, yet it was in regions under the influence of such great feudatories that the nearest approach to order prevailed. Habsburg rule in the southeast, Burgundian rule in the northwest, were establishing settled states, though rather at the expense of Germany as a whole than by way of contributing to its general peace. In a similar fashion, Bavaria and the northeastern marchland between Elbe and Oder attained comparative prosperity under Wittelsbachs, Wettins, and Hohenzollerns. But in the other parts of Germany, affairs were far worse. Even in the ancient Duchy of Saxony, the dissipation of the princely power had become extreme. But the Rhineland, Franconia and Swabia were in an even more unhappy condition. The scattered estates of the four Rhenish electors and powers such as Cleves and Hesse were in no case strong enough to preserve general order in the Rhineland. The elector of Mainz, the bishops of Würzburg and Bamberg, and the abbot of Fulda, were, save the Kulmbach Hohenzollerns, the only rulers over even relatively considerable territories in Franconia. Wittenberg and Baden alone broke the monotony of infinite subdivision in Swabia. The characteristic powers in all these regions were rather the counts and the knights, mere local lords or squires with full or partial princely authority over their petty estates. In such regions as these, Economic prosperity and ordered civil existence depended almost entirely on the number and importance of the free imperial cities. Neither from the lesser immediate nobility nor from the city communities was any real contribution to be expected towards imperial reform. The counts and knights were too poor, too numerous and too helpless to be able to safeguard even their own interests. Their absurd jealousies of each other, their feuds with the princes and the towns, their chronic policy of highway robbery made them the chief difficulty in the way of that general Landfriede, which had been proclaimed so often but never realised. The towns were almost equally incompetent to take up a general national policy. They were indeed wealthy, numerous and important, but despite their unions with each other, they never advanced towards a really national line of action. Their intense local patriotism narrowed their interest to the region immediately around their walls, and their parochial separatism was almost as intense as that of their natural enemies, the lesser nobles. While they had thus scanty will to act, their power to do so was perhaps much less than is often imagined. Machiavelli's glowing eulogies of their liberty and capacity of resistance has misled most moderns as to the true position of the German cities. In no way is their position comparable to that of the towns of Italy. The great Italian cities largely owed their political influence to the fact that they ruled without a rival over districts as large as most German principalities. But in Germany, the territory of many of the strongest among the free cities, such as Augsburg, was almost confined to the limits of their city walls. There were very few towns which dominated so wide a stretch of the countryside as Nuremberg. But how insignificant was the Nuremberg territory as compared with that of Florence? Even the population and wealth of the German towns have probably been exaggerated. 
Careful statistical investigation suggests that none of the cities of Upper Germany had more than 20,000 inhabitants, and those which may have been of larger size, such as Cologne or Bremen or Lübeck, are of more importance in the commercial than in the political history of Germany. Though the financiers of Augsburg and Frankfurt and the merchants of Nuremberg or Basel or Cologne were acquiring vast wealth, building palaces for their residents and through their luxurious ways raising the standard of civilization and comfort for all ranks of Germans, they were not yet in a position so much as to aspire to political direction. Yet it was in the towns only that there could be found any non-noble class with even the faintest interest in politics. The condition of the country population was steadily declining. Feudalism still kept the peasant in its iron grip, and the rise in prices which opened the economic revolution that ushered in modern times was now beginning to destroy his material prosperity. In the Upper Rhineland, the condition of the agricultural population seems to have been very similar to that of the French peasantry before the outbreak of the revolution. While their Swiss neighbours were free and prosperous, the peasant of Elsass, or of the Black Forest, was hardly able to make a living through the overgrade subdivision of the little holdings. It was in this region that the repeated troubles of the Bunchu and the revolts of poor Conrad showed that deep-seated distress had led to the propagation of socialistic and revolutionary schemes among men desperate enough and bold enough to seek by armed force a remedy for their wrongs. Outside this region there was very little active revolutionary propaganda or actual peasant revolt. However, in 1515, formidable disturbances broke out in Syria and the neighbouring districts. The beginnings of a more national policy at last came from some of the princes of the second rank. Counts, knights, towns and peasants were too poor, divided and limited in their views, to aim at common action. But among the princes of secondary importance were men too far-seeing and politic to adopt a merely isolated attitude while their consciousness of the limitation of their resources left them without so much as the wish of aspiring to follow from afar the example of Charles the Bold or Albert the Fourth of Munich. To the abler German lords of this type, the feudal ideal of absolute domination over their own fiefs was less satisfying in itself and moreover less probable of realisation. Their territories were so small and so scattered their resources were so meagre and so precarious that feudal independence meant to them but a limited, localised and stunted career and afforded them few guarantees of protection against the aggressions of their stronger neighbours. In such men there was no strong bias of self-interest to prevent their giving rein to the wholesome sentiment of love of fatherland which still survived in German breasts. But personal pride, traditional feuds with neighbouring houses, the habit of suspicion, and the general low level of political sagacity and individual capacity made it difficult for this class as a whole to initiate any comprehensive movement. All through the weary years of Frederick's reign, projects of reform had been constantly shattered by the violence and jealousy of the greater princes, and by the indifference and want of unanimity of the petty ones. A leader of ability and insight had long been wanted to dominate their sluggish natures and quicken their slow minds with worthier ideals. Such a leader was at last found in Count Berthold of Henneberg, 
who in 1484 became a lector of Mainz at the age of 42. He soon made himself famous for the vigour, justice and sternness with which he ruled his dominions, for his eloquence in council, and for the large and patriotic views which he held on all broad questions of national policy. With him, the movement for effective imperial reform really begins. Berthold of Mainz had little of the churchman about him, and his life was in no wise that of a saint, but he stands out among all the princes of his time as the one statesman who strove with great ability and consummate pertinacity to realise the ideal of a free, national and united German state. His courage, his resourcefulness, his pertinacity and his enthusiasm carried for a time everything before them. But soon grave practical difficulties wrecked his schemes and blasted his hopes. It is even possible to imagine that his policy was vicious in principle. It was a visionary and an impossible task to make petty feudalists champions of order, law and progress. It involved, moreover, an antagonism to the monarchy, which after all was the only possible centre of any effective national sentiment in that age. But whatever may be thought of Berthold's practical insight, the whole history of Frederick III and of his successors shows clearly that the German monarchy, far from being, as in England or France, the true mainspring of a united national life, persistently and by deliberate policy operated as the strongest particularistic influence. After all, Germany was a nation and Berthold strove by the only way open to him to make Germany what England and France were already becoming. It was not his fault that the method forced upon him was from the beginning an almost hopeless one. To students of English medieval history, Berthold's position seems perfectly clear. His ambition was to provide Germany with an efficient central government but also to secure that the exercise of this authority should be in the hands of a committee of magnates and not under the control of the German monarch. This design has been described as an attempt at federalism, but the word suggests a more conscious partition of power between central and local authority and a more organised and representative control of the supreme power than ever Berthold or his associates dreamed to be necessary. A more complete analogy with Berthold's ideals is to be found in the policy of the great prelates and earls of England against the more neglectful or self-seeking kings of the 13th and 14th centuries. The Clares and the Montforts, the Bohuns, Bigots and Lancasters, the Cantilupes, the Vincislas and the Arundels of medieval England had no trace of properly feudal ambition. They accepted the centralised institutions of the monarchy as ultimate facts and aspired only to keep the centralised power under their own control. The heroes of the provisions of Oxford, the Lords Ordainers and the Lords Appellant, while upholding the representative legislative and taxative body by frequent sessions of Parliament, sought to put the executive power which properly belonged to the Crown into the hands of a commission roughly representative of the great houses. It was a nobler ambition and a finer career for a Clare or a Bohun or a Fetzalan to take his share in controlling the central power than to strive to put a ring fence round his estates and govern them as he had long administered his Welsh marcher lordships. 
even the lord of a great palatinate might prefer to have his share in ruling england as a whole rather than limit his ambition to playing the part of a petty king on his own estates and antony beck was a greater man as minister of edward i as the mere sovereign of the lands of st cuthbert Berthold and his associates were in the same position as the english baronial leaders as Archbishop of Mainz, Berthold might either be a petty prince holding sway over scattered regions of the Rhineland and of Franconia, or a great political ecclesiastic like Arundel, or Wycombe, or George of Amboise. The wider career appealed alike to his patriotism, his interests, and his ambition. As feudal sovereigns, the Rhenish electors stood but in the second rank of German rulers. As prelates, as councillors of their peers, as directors of the diet, and as effective and not merely nominal chancellors of their suzerain's domains, they might well emulate the exploits of a Hanno or a Reinald of Dassel. Under the guidance of an aristocracy that was neither feudal nor particularist, and in which the ecclesiastical element was so strong that the dangers of hereditary influence were reduced to a minimum, a German state might have arisen as united and strong as the France of Louis XI, or Francis I, while as free as Lancastrian England. Rude facts prove this ambition unworkable. Monarchy, and monarchy only, could be practically efficient as the formative element in national life. Since German monarchy refused to do its duty, German unity was destined not to be achieved. Nevertheless, the attempt of Berthold is among the most interesting experiments in history, and the spectacle of the feudal potentates of Germany reversing the role of their French or Spanish compeers and striving to build up a united German nation despite the separatist opposition of the German monarch shows how strong were the forces that made for nationality during the transition from medieval to modern times and it was no small indication of the practical wisdom of Berthold that he won over the whole electoral college to his views. Less dignified princes were as a rule content to follow their lead. Only the dukes of Bavaria held aloof, obstinately bent upon securing Bavarian interests alone. But perhaps the greatest triumph of the reformers was to be found in the temporary adhesion of the young king of the Romans to their plan. Berthold of Mainz laid his first plan of reform before the Diet of Frankfurt of 1485. He proposed a single national system of currency, a universal Landfriede, and a Supreme Court of Justice specifically charged with the carrying out of the public peace. After the election of Maximilian in 1486, the demand of a special grant to carry on war against the Turks gave a new opportunity for insisting on the policy which the cold and unsympathetic emperor had done his best to shelve. But the princes now rejected the proposed tax on the ground that the cooperation of the cities was necessary towards granting an aid, whereas no cities had been summoned to this diet. The result was before long the final establishment of the right of the cities to form an integral part of every assembly of the German National Council. The Diet of 1489 saw every imperial town summoned to its deliberations. Within a generation, the city representatives had become the third estate of the empire, side by side with electors and princes. Frederick gave way both in the question of the rights of the cities and on the programme of reform. 
he procured his Turkish grant in return for the promise to establish the Landfriede and an imperial court of justice, but he did nothing to give effect to his general assurances, and the estates, closely brought together by their common aim, continued to press for the carrying out of Frederick's concessions. Their first real victory was at the Diet of Frankfurt in 1489, when Maximilian, intent on getting help to make himself master of the Netherlands, and now also involved in his fantastic quest of the hand of Anne of Brittany, promised the Diet to do his best to aid it in obtaining an effective constitution of the Imperial Court of Justice. A further step in advance was made at the important Diet of Nuremberg of 1491, where Maximilian declared that the Landfriede, already proclaimed for ten years, should be proclaimed for ever, and that for its execution a competent tribunal should be set up at his father's court. Even Maximilian's adhesion failed to secure the lasting triumph of the estate. So long as the old emperor lived, nothing practical was done. But on Frederick's death in 1493, the open-minded heir became the actual ruler of the empire. Maximilian was young, restless, ambitious, and able. He had already embarked in those grandiose schemes of international intervention which remained the most serious political interest of the rest of his life. To these he now added his father's care for the development and consolidation of a great Austrian state. Having, however, nothing of Frederick's self-restraint, he ever gave free rein to the impulse of the moment, and was willing not only to sacrifice the empire, to whose interests he was indifferent, but even his own Austrian lands to obtain some immediate military or diplomatic advantage in the prosecution of his more visionary ideals. Since he had become king of the Romans, he had won his share of successes, but his incurable habit of keeping too many irons in the fire made it impossible for him to prevail in the long run. It was something that, despite the recent anonymy of his Bruges captivity, he was steadily increasing the influence which he wielded in the Netherlands on behalf of his young son, Philip. But he was still involved in great difficulties in that quarter, and the hostility of France, which had robbed him of his Breton wife, still excited powerful Netherlandish factions against him. A new trouble arose with Charles VIII's expedition to Italy in 1494. The triumphant progress of the French king gave the last blow to the imagined interests of the empire in the peninsula. Maximilian, who had at first hoped to fish on his own account in the troubled waters, became intensely eager to afford all the help he could to the Italian League which was soon formed against the French. In 1495, he formally adhered to the Confederacy, but effective assistance to the Italians could only be given by Maximilian as the price of real concessions to the party of imperial reform. Though the promises made by him in his father's lifetime sat but lightly on the reigning monarch, impulse, ambition, and immediate policy all combined to keep him, in this case, true to his word. On March 26, 1495, Maximilian laid his first proposition before a diet at Worms, to which, despite the urgency of the crisis, the princes came slowly and negligently. He appealed strongly to the estates to check the progress of the French in Italy. An immediate grant for the relief of Milan, a more continued subsidy that would enable him to set up a standing army for ten or twelve years, 
could alone save the empire from dishonour. It was the opportunity of the reformers, and on April the 29th, Elector Berthold formulated the conditions upon which the Diet could give the king efficient financial and military support. The old ideas, public peace, imperial court of justice and the rest, were once more elaborated. But Berthold's chief anxiety was now for the appointment of a permanent imperial council, representative directly of the electors and the other estates of the empire without whose approval no act of the king was to be regarded as valid. The only solid power Berthold wished to reserve to the king was that of supreme command in war, but no war was to be declared without the sanction of the council. Matters of too great difficulty for the council to determine were to be referred not to the king alone, but to the king and electors in conjunction and both here and on the projected council the king counted but as a single vote. If Maximilian accepted this scheme, a common penny was to be levied throughout the empire and an army established under the control of the council. To Maximilian, Berthold's proposals must have seemed but a demand for his abdication, but he cleverly negotiated instead of openly refusing and finally made a counter-proposal which practically reduced the suggested council to a mere royal council, whose independent action was limited to the periods of the king's absence, and which otherwise sat at the king's court, and depended upon the king's pleasure. Long and wearisome negotiations followed, but a final agreement issued on August the 7th showed that Berthold's plan had essentially been abandoned in favour of Maximilian's alternative propositions. The reformers preferred to give up their executive council altogether rather than allow it to be twisted into a shape which would have subordinated it to the royal prerogative. They went back on the old line of suggestions, public peace, common penny, imperial court of justice and the rest. Maximilian had already professed his acceptance of these schemes, so that on such lines agreement was not difficult. Even this mutilated plan of reform was sufficiently thorough and drastic. It makes the Diet of 1495 one of the turning points in the constitutional history of the empire. The Landfriede was proclaimed without any limitation of time, and private wars forbidden to all the states of the empire under pain of the imperial ban. A special obligation to carry out this public peace was enjoined on those dwelling within twenty miles of the place of any breach of it. Were this not enough, the vindication of the peace rested with the Diet. Law was now to supersede violence, and an adequate Supreme Court was at last to be established. Frederick III had converted his traditional feudal court, Hofgericht, into an institution styled the Cameral Tribunal, Kammergericht without in any very material way modifying its constitution. A very different imperial cameral tribunal, Reichskammergericht, was now set up. Its head, the Kammerrichter, was indeed the king's nominee, but the sixteen assessors, half doctors of law, half of knightly rank, who virtually overshadowed his authority, were to be directly nominated by the estates. The law which the new court was to administer was the Roman law, whose doctrines soon began to filter downwards into the lower courts, with the result that its principles and procedure speedily exercised a profound influence on every branch of German jurisprudence.
the new court was not to follow the king, but to sit at some fixed place at first Frankfurt, which could only be changed by vote of the estates. Its officers were to be paid not by the emperor, but by the empire. Thus, independent of the monarch and responsible to the estates alone, they were to exercise supreme jurisdiction over all persons and in all causes, and immediate jurisdiction over all tenants-in-chief. The Diet was henceforth to meet annually, and no weighty matters were to be decided, even by the king, without the counsel and consent of the estates. This was practically the compensation which Maximilian offered to the reformers for rejecting their plan of a permanent executive council. Frequent parliaments might be endured, but a cabinet council dependent upon the estates was, as Max saw, fatal to the continuance of his authority. A general tax called the common penny, Gemeine Pfennig, was to be levied throughout the empire. This was a roughly assessed and rudely graduated property tax, which had also some elements of an income tax and a poll tax. It was now established for four years, and was to be collected by the local princely or municipal authorities, but to be handed over to officials of the empire and ultimately entrusted to seven imperial treasurers, appointed by king and estates and established at Frankfurt. Max was authorised to take 150,000 florins from the common penny to defray the expenses of his Italian expedition. In September, the estates separated. Both king and diet were mutually satisfied, and it seemed as if brighter days were to dawn for the empire. But dark clouds soon began to gather on every side. Maximilian was bitterly disappointed with his unfortunate Italian campaign of 1496. The German reformers soon found out that it was easier to draw up schemes of reform than to carry out even the slightest improvement. It was not that the Edict of Worms was wholly inoperative. The proclamation of the Landfrieder was a real boon, though of course it did not change by magic a lawless into a law-abiding society. The Kammergericht provided justice in many cases where justice would have been impossible before. But the collection of the common penny proved the real difficulty. Even princes who were well disposed towards Bertold's policy showed no eagerness to levy a tax which other men were to spend. In many districts, nothing whatever was done to collect the money. The knights as a body refused all taxation inasmuch as their service was military and not fiscal. The abbots declined to recognise the jurisdiction of a court so exclusively secular as the Kammergericht. The princes not represented at Worms repudiated altogether laws passed by an assembly in which they had taken no part. The weak point of the new constitution was its lack of any administrative authority. Maximilian was in Italy, and his representatives ostentatiously stood aloof from any effort to enforce the new laws. Events soon showed that Berthold was right in demanding the establishment of an effective council. The yearly diets were too cumbrous, expensive and disorganised to be of any value in discharging administrative functions. The first diet under the new system, which was to meet in February 1496 and complete the new constitution, never came into being, neither Max nor the princes thinking it worth their while to attend. Before long, want of money and want of coercive power vitiated the whole scheme of reform. The imperial chamber ceased to be efficient, 
when its decisions could not be enforced, and when its members, seeing no prospect of their promised salaries from an empty treasury, compensated themselves by taking bribes from suitors or transferred themselves to more profitable employment. The next few years were marked by a series of strenuous efforts on the part of Berthold to carry through in practice what had already been accepted in name. Max's need for money soon gave him his chance. The Diet was summoned to meet the Emperor at Kevenna, and when the princes refused to cross the Alps, its meeting place was fixed for Lindau on the Lake of Constance. The remote and inconvenient little island city was, to the great disgust of the estates, selected because of its nearness to Italy. The princes were ordered to bring with them their share of the common penny and their quota of troops to support the emperor in Italy. But the diet, which was opened in September 1496, was very scantily attended. The princes who appeared came to lend out without either money or men. In Maximilian's absence, Berthold of Mainz stood forth more conspicuously than ever as the leader of the estates. He passionately exhorted the Germans to follow the example of the Swiss, who through union and trust in one another had made themselves respected and feared by all the world. His special object was to insist upon the execution of the Edict of Worms in the Austrian hereditary dominions, where but slight regard had hitherto been paid to it. He also secured the passing of a resolution that the common penny should be paid to the imperial treasurers by March 1497, and that its disposition should be determined by a new diet to be summoned for the spring. By promptly providing for the salaries of its members, Berthold also prevented the dissolution of the Kammergericht, which the diet now transferred to Worms, because that city was regarded as a more accessible place than Frankfurt for the doctors of the Rhenish University. End of section 30